following message is presented by Erie Evangelical Free Church in Erie, Illinois. We are a church that exists for the good of our community and are proud to share the gospel of Jesus Christ as we seek to know him and make him known. Growing up, I played a lot of sports. I was outdoors a lot, so I wasn't, as the kids would say, a gamer. Was not, I was not a video game guy, but we did have a, an old original Nintendo and so I did play some video games, and of course, with the Nintendo, you always had Super Mario Brothers. And like I said, I wasn't a gamer, but I was good enough at Super Mario Brothers to, you know, I figured out how to beat it. I was able to, to beat the game. And you know what the key to winning in Super Mario Brothers is? Okay, first off, the warp zones help. There's like five of you who get that joke. The warp zones help. But here's the key to winning Super Mario Brothers you memorized each level that you played because it was always the same every time. So you knew exactly what was coming up. You knew where the trouble was. You knew where the spots were that were dangerous for you and you could prepare yourself for them or even avoid them. So you had to know what was coming next to avoid the trouble. It's true oftentimes in our lives, isn't it? Sometimes the best way to protect against opposition is to confront it before it becomes a problem. Whether this is in disciplining your children, whether it's staying away from too many sweets, or whether it's setting a personal or professional goal in your life, to be able to look ahead and know what the potential pitfalls and obstacles may be helps you to prepare to confront them and to overcome them. See, success in that light, comes more from acting intentionally than reacting defensively. This can be very true in our faith as well. And the question is, if we are pursuing Christ, if you and I want to grow and mature in our walk with him, to know him better, to live out our faith with a hotter, brighter flame of faith, do we understand the pitfalls that, a, that present a danger to our faith, that present a danger to the flame that we hold. See, last week, we asked three questions that helped us to identify the, really, the livelihood of our faith. And today, Paul is going to give us the flip side of that. And he's going to be examining a faith that is dead or at least dying, And as we look at this, we're going to see how we can avoid falling into such a state. And he gives us really three ways to look at this. And the first is this. He shows us the characteristics of a dead flame. Paul shows us the characteristics of a dead flame. This is verses 1 through 5 of 2 Timothy chapter 3. He says, but know this. Hard times will come in the last days. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, proud, demeaning, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, without love for what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness but denying its power. Avoid these people. The characteristics of a dead flame. Right off the bat here, Paul promises us one thing. Struggle. Catch it? His first words. 
you will struggle. The struggle is normal. Okay, if you're walking in your faith and you're like, man, why is this so hard? Welcome to the club. (laughs) Paul says it's going to be hard. Not because God fails us, but because we fail him. And Paul then gives us 19 characteristics of the person who fails God. The one who turns away from the love, the grace, and the mercy of our creator. 19 characteristics. And we're going to break each one of them down in great length this morning. No, no, we're not going to do that. You can, you can study that on your own this week. But what I do want you to notice about all 19 of these is how this list begins and how this list ends. Because here is the key to this entire list. It begins and it ends with misplaced love. It begins and it ends with misplaced love. Watch. Verse 2, it says people will be what? Lovers of self and lovers of money. At the end of the list in verse 4, he says what? Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They have love. They just love themselves and money and pleasure instead of God. It's a misplaced love. Everything in between points back to these. Paul then sums the whole thing up in verse five. And he says, listen, these people, they, they, they have this form of godliness, but they deny its power. What he says is they may look good on the outside, but their misplaced love is ungodly. They may do things that look nice, that look appealing, but all of their power, all of their love is misplaced and it is ungodly. I like, I like steak. Like a good, juicy steak. Some of you may not be steak lovers. That's okay. Just stick with me. Okay, I love a big, juicy steak. But here's the thing. If you go buy a steak, it's very rare that you buy the steak, you come home, and you throw it right on the grill. And for us, if we, if we have steaks at home, they're probably going to sit where? The refrigerator, right? We're going to put them in the refrigerator, and when the time comes, we're going to throw them on the grill. What happens if I come home, and it's like Tuesday. I get a nice, big, juicy thick, juicy steak from the store. And I'm like, Saturday, we're grilling up steak. And I take that steak home and I take it into the kitchen. I'm like, Aaron, I'm putting the steak away. And I put it on the top shelf in the kitchen cabinet. Saturday, I come, I take it out. Mmm, right? Yum. We're going to throw it on the grill. Well, what's happened to that steak? It's, It's gone bad. It's rotten. The problem with the steak is not the steak itself. The problem with the steak is I put it in the wrong place. That exact same steak in the refrigerator would have been just fine. It would have been delicious. But because I put it in the wrong place, it went bad. See, everything you and I do in our lives is rooted in some form of love. Right? When we're sweet to our spouse, our children, our family, our friends... It's because we love them, right? Yeah. When we scream at our coworker, it's because we love ourselves and they've made our day harder. When we indulge in unhealthy behaviors, it's because we love the sensation of immediate gratification. See, everything we do is some form of love, but obviously not all forms of love 
Not all expressions of love honor the Lord. Misplaced love serves ourselves and leads to destruction. Proverbs 16, verse 5. says, everyone with a proud heart is detestable to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. Right, everyone, it says, with a proud heart. What's a proud heart? It's a heart that loves itself over the Lord. It's a heart that loves itself over anyone else. A proud heart says, I am the best. I am the greatest. All should bow before me. Maybe it doesn't say it exactly like that. <laughs> May not use those words, but that's the intent. And that proud heart is detestable. Why? Because it's taking this love that God has given us and used it on ourselves. So how do we protect against this? How do we protect against dead characteristics? It's really simple. We properly apply love. That's really all there is to it. We properly apply love. Simple, right? Well, what does that mean? What does properly applied love look like? It looks exactly like what you think it's going to look like. Matthew chapter 22, verse 37 through 39. Jesus is asked, right? What's the greatest commandment? And you know what he says. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. He goes on to say, all of the law and all the prophets are summed up in these. So Jesus says, Jesus says properly placed love is on the Lord first and on others after that. What would the, mis would the misplaced love of the dead faith look like? Lovers of self, right? Self, lovers of money, material. Lovers of pleasure, self-gratification, not the Lord. Right? We want to protect against that. We must constantly be saying, okay, who do we love? Who do I love most in this world? If your answer is your spouse, you're wrong. If your answer is your children, you're wrong. I mean, that might be right, but it's not where it should be. Our love is first and foremost, always the Lord. And then to others. If we want to avoid dead characteristics, we love Christ above all else. And then we love others before ourselves. How do we know when we're doing this? Here's the, the question to ask this week. What would other people in your life say is your greatest love? What would other people in your life, the people you work with, the people you just kind of know, the people you interact with in the community, what would they say is the greatest love of your heart? Does it point back to Christ? Paul says the characteristic of a dead flame is misplaced love. Next, he moves on from the, the characteristics of this dead flame. And he shows in verse six and seven, the tactics of a dead flame. Verse six and seven. It says, for among them, who are them? And we have to go back to the end of, of verse five, where it says, avoid these people. These people are those who have the characteristics of a dead faith, false teachers, 
those who, who preach self over Christ. Six, for among them are those who worm their way into households and deceive gullible women, overwhelmed by sin and led astray by, very, by a variety of passions, always learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. The tactics of a dead flame. Paul minces no words here. He says, the false teachers, what do they do? They worm their way into household. They sneak in in order to deceive. Who who do they deceive? Gullible women. Some people get really upset at this passage because they're like, well, the Bible calls women gullible. No, it doesn't. You're pulling it out of context. You should have been here for Discovery Group this morning. Because what is this saying? It's, it's not some sexist comment that like all women are gullible, so that's who, the, that's who the false teachers always target. No, no, no. It's not that all women are gullible or men are not. What he's saying is this is how the false teachers operated in Ephesus at this time. The, the, the description of gullible doesn't apply to all women any more than the descriptions of the dead flame apply to all men in verses two through four. So this isn't about some general statement. This is a specific statement about tactics in one place at one time. And what happened was these false teachers looked around the church and said, man, who can we we deceive? And who's easily deceived? Those who are gullible, right? That's kind of the definition of gullible. So they identified those who would be gullible, those who they could deceive, and they went after them. And they wormed their way into their households. They used lies and deceptions to capture them. And to perpetuate for themselves this captive audience. Because what they did is they said, hey, these gullible women, we're going to go to them, we're going to tell them lies, and we're going to continue to tell them, listen, you really want to know about God? You have to come to us. Nobody else has it right. Nobody else can tell you anything about God. You have to come to us. And of course, these gullible women wanted to know about the Lord, so they came. And they kept getting taught lie. And they were taught lie upon lie upon lie. And they were buried in this avalanche of lies for which they continued to receive information but could not grow in the knowledge of truth because they didn't receive the truth. So this whole thing is about how these false teachers worked to their advantage. It reminds me of a, there's a, a commercial, I think it's for Capital One, but it's these like 10-year-old kids playing basketball and it shows the, the two kids who are captains of the team and they're trying to pick teams. And this girl looks, she goes, well, I'll take Barkley. And then they show the kids playing and it's a bunch of 10-year-olds and then Charles Barkley, who's a, he's a NBA Hall of Fame basketball player. Right? So he's standing there, he's like this big and all these kids are like right here. And he's like, yes, I still got it. I told you she'd pick me first. He's all excited. Why does the girl pick Charles Barkley? Because she knows that he's going to be the one who best gets her what she wants, which is to win. This is the same tactic of the false teachers in Ephesus. They wormed their way in to deceive the believers. They picked out who they thought they could best work on, who could best get them what they wanted. Listen, this tactic is still used by many who seek to deceive the believers today. This is a common tactic. What's the one thing that that you want most? What's the one thing I can get in and tell you that will sound really good to you? And they'll use that to dissuade you from the truth, to deceive you. 
So how do you and I defend against such tactics? First, and again, here's another really obvious answer for you, okay? Sunday school answer coming at you. I'm warning you right up front. First, we immerse ourselves in God's word. You want to defend against the tactic of deception? You immerse yourself in God's word. God's word is the only foundation of truth and life. It's the only foundation for a true knowledge of the nature of God because he has revealed to us everything we need to know about him in the words of scripture. Anything else we hear about God, know about God, learn about God has to be measured against this. And if it comes up short, it is a lie. See, all false teachings, every heresy in the history of the church always contains enough truth to make it seem and feel believable. That's why people follow it. But in the end, it usually exalts just one aspect of of who God is at the expense of so much more. It's at the expense of the whole truth. Remember, we talked just a couple weeks ago about Hymenaeus and Philetus in 2 Timothy 2, verse 17 and 18. These are guys, false teachers that Paul is talking about. His Hymenaeus and Philetus are among them, and them is the false teachers. They have departed from the truth, saying the resurrection has already taken place and is ruining the faith of some. See, what Hymenaeus and Philetus did was they played the game that you may know as three truths and a lie. You know the game, three truths and a lie? You tell three truths and one lie and try to get people to decide which one you're lying about. That's what Hymenaeus and Philetus did. Because what they did was they said, yes, Jesus is God. Jesus died and rose. And Jesus is all good because he is God, right? Three truths. But they also said that since he is God, he can't be flesh because you and I have a sinful flesh. So if he was a man, he'd have sinful flesh. So he doesn't have flesh like a human being, right? Three truths and a lie. But from that, they go, so your resurrection has already taken place because the resurrection can only be spiritual because Jesus was only spiritually resurrected, not physically. And the end result of that, of course, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, is that it means Jesus can't save you because he didn't die for you. He didn't bleed for you. He didn't pay the penalty of sin for you if he was just spiritual and not physical. That's how heresies work. Three truths and a lie. It sounds good. You're like, yeah, that all makes sense until you really dive in. The only way we overcome that is by being consumed by God's word so we recognize not just partial truths, but the full truth. And that when we're confronted by those partial truths, we recognize there's just something missing. But I guarantee if we are not immersed in God's word, we will miss it every time. And we will focus on the one aspect that we like about God or the one teaching we like about Jesus at the expense of the fullness of who he is. Okay, so we must remain immersed in God's word. Second, if we remain immersed in God's word, then we must deny ourselves. And one of the cornerstones of false teachings is that it contains enough truth to make it sound plausible to distract us. The other is that false teachings always serve 
me. False teachings always serve me. When you are confronted by false teaching, by lies, by deceptions of false teachers, it will be to serve you. That's why it sounds good, right? It doesn't sound good to me for Jesus to say, times are gonna be hard, you're gonna suffer. That doesn't sound good to me. But if you can come up with a teaching that says, well, Jesus says everything's gonna be all right for you. I'm in, I love that one. My false teachings will always serve you. They serve me. And as long as we are laser focused on our own desires, we'll be susceptible to lies and deception. It's because we were not created to live that way. We were created to love God and serve others. Ephesians 2.10, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Right, we were created for good works. What are good works? Works that point to the glory and the honor of the Lord, that love the Lord and serve others. If that's our focus, instead of my own desires, my own satisfaction, my own fulfillment, then we'll have no time to be distracted and deceived by selfish lies. But it's a matter of are we actively protecting our lives and our theology against the tactics of a dead flame. Because none of this happens on its own. You won't just happen to be immersed in the word. You won't just happen to deny yourself. Oh, look what I did today. I didn't even think about it. Didn't even try. No, that's not the way it works. It requires us to be active and focused and dedicated and committed. So are we actively protecting our lives and our theology? See, if we can learn to see the characteristics and the tactics of a dead flame, then it makes it so that we can more easily see the evidence of a dead flame. We see this in verse 8 and 9. Come to the evidence of the dead flame. He says, Just as Giannis and Yambres resisted Moses, so these also resist the truth. They are men who are corrupt in their mind and worthless in regard to faith but they will not make further progress. Their foolishness will be clear to all, as was the foolishness of Giannis and Yambres. The evidence of a, dead, of a dead flame. Paul goes back and he, he talks about two men, Giannis and Yambres. You may say, well, who are these guys? Where do we read about these guys in scripture? You, you don't. These are names that don't appear in the Bible, in the Old Testament or the New Testament. We get these names from Jewish tradition. Now, when we say that, some people are like, well, hold on then. Does that mean the Bible lies to us? No. What Paul is doing is he's, he's using these names that his audience would know of, that they would know about, that they would associate with these, this unnamed group of people in Scripture, this unnamed group of people shows up in the book of Exodus. In Exodus chapter 7, verse 11, Moses comes to Pharaoh, and he does the signs to show him that he's from the Lord. And the, finally, he throws a staff down. It turns into a snake. He picks the, staff, the snake up, and it becomes a staff again. And then in, in Exodus seven eleven, it says, Pharaoh called the wise men and sorcerers. This is what Jewish tradition names as Yannis and Yambres, the magicians of Egypt. And they also did the same thing by their occult practices. 
They used witchcraft and, and magic to do things that looked kind of like what God did. But God showed his power through Moses in miracles that this kind of magic, that again looked like divine power, this magic could not do, and their, their impotence became clear to Egypt, to the Israelites, and to the whole world. In Exodus chapter 8, verse 18, we get the first picture of this. When we get to the second uh, of, of the plagues, the plague of the gnats, it then says in Exodus eight eighteen, the magicians tried to produce gnats by their occult practices, but they could not. And from then on, it was just a sign after sign that these guys could not match the God of the Israelites the God of heaven and earth, the God of all creation. Giannis and Yambres failed at their task. And so too will the work of the false teachers in Ephesus fail, and so too will the work of the false teachers in this day and age. And in today's church, will fail. Because the evidence of the dead flame is the lack of any real power. The evidence of a dead flame is the lack of any real power. Okay, so what does that mean to us? How, how do we make sure that, that our lives display not this evidence of a dead flame, this lack of power, but evidence of a, a powerful living faith? To do that, we must live in, live with, and live under the power of Jesus Christ. That begins with an understanding of the truth and the depth of the gospel. This is why we talk about the gospel every single week in this church. It's not because I don't know how to fill a little more time in the sermon. It's because this is the most important thing for us to know in our entire lives. Is that a perfect and holy God created us to know Him and love Him and serve Him and be with Him for all of eternity? And instead of taking that beautiful, glorious offer, we choose ourselves over Him. It started with Adam and Eve in the garden, then they sinned and they fell and they met this destruction of sin. Through the rest of the Old Testament, we see the Israelites doing the same thing over and over and over again. God redeeming them, God rescuing them, God providing for them, God showing them who he is and them going, thanks God, that's awesome. Now we got it from here. And yet instead of leaving them there, God at just the right time sent his son, Jesus Christ, who willingly left the throne of heaven to be born into this world, taking on human flesh, born of a virgin, born under the law so that he might live a perfect, sinless life, die a sacrificial death to pay the penalty for your sin and my sin, so that he might rise victoriously, defeating death once and for all, ascending to the right hand of the Father where he sits as our advocate, so that you and I don't have to be good enough, don't have to do enough right things, to be right with the Lord because Jesus has accomplished everything we need to accomplish. Our call is to love him, to give him our heart, our soul, our lives, our everything. That's the heart of the gospel. 
But if we truly want to know the power of God, we must surrender to Jesus Christ, entrusting our lives to the one who conquered sin and death and offers us life in the presence of a good, holy, and perfect Father. And I know sometimes, maybe where you're at in life, maybe where you're at in this week, you hear that and you're like, that sounds good and churchy. That sounds nice. I've heard it before. Give me something else. Give me something I can use. But the gospel confronts us with the question of where we will surrender. Right? Maybe you're sitting here today and you're just overwhelmed by the week, the month, the year that you've had, by the situations in your life, by where relationships have gone, by the struggle, by the battle. The gospel confronts us with a question and says, do you want to try to fight through it? Do you want to try to be stronger? To be tougher? To muscle through? Or do you want to rest in the Holy Spirit's power as he wraps you in divine peace and comfort? Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're wrestling with with doubt. You're wondering if your trust in the Lord even matters. The gospel confronts you and says, do you want to keep going? Do you want to keep going through the motions? I did this, I did that, I checked this box. I think I'm a good person. Or do you want to stop and consider the goodness of God, even in the smallest blessing of your life, and how undeserved that is? and how glorious the gift is. Maybe things are going really well for you. Maybe you're coming in here this morning, you're riding a high. And on that high, you're starting to buy into the lie that that you can handle life. I can do this. I got this. Thanks God for saving me now. I got it from here. The gospel confronts you with the question of, do you want to roll along blissfully unaware of your own weakness? Or do you want to stop and recognize the bleakness and brokenness of a world when it is left to its own devices? The bleakness and brokenness of your own heart and your own life when left to your own devices. See, only a complete trust in the Lord in good times and in hard times the hard times that Paul promised in verse one. Only that kind of trust proves the fire of faith and leaves the evidence of faith. 2 Corinthians 12, nine. Paul has just talked about this, this issue he has. And he's prayed for three seasons, Lord, take this thorn from my flesh. And what's God's response? My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. We love that part, don't we? God says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected. But how often do we skip the second half of this verse? It says, therefore, Paul writes, therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weakness so that Christ's power may reside in me. He doesn't say I get over it. He doesn't say the weakness leaves me. 
He says, I boast in my weakness. I am imperfect. I am broken. I am frail. I am fallen. I don't have the answers. I can't get rid of this thing. It bugs me. It bothers me. I don't like it. God won't take it away. But you know what? His grace is still sufficient. I will boast in my weakness. I don't think Paul's happy that he has to carry this thorn in his flesh for his whole life. I don't think he enjoys it. But he says, that's not the point. He says, my trust, my hope, my faith is not in the fact that I will get what I want. It's in the fact that God will give me what I need. Listen, what evidence does our flame provide in the hard times, in the places, the ways that God doesn't give us what we want, what we think is best, what we wish were true? What evidence does our flame provide as to the nature of our trust and our hope? Again, last week, Paul gave us that that distinction between honorable and dishonorable vessels in God's house. He said the honorable vessel carries a hot flame that is useful to his kingdom. The dishonorable vessels are useful only to be cast aside and disposed of. Today's passage, he's just drawn out that distinction between the two for us. And this is a reality we have to recognize in false teachers and and false teachings of our day. Those who seek to deceive us and to to deceive our brothers and sisters in Christ and to deceive those in the world who are still trying to figure out what their relationship with the Lord looks like. It's important for us to see that in the false teachers. But here's the thing. It's more important that we are aware of what the dishonorable vessel, the dead flame looks like so that we can identify that danger when it starts to creep into our own hearts because every single one of us will have these creep into our hearts. We want to see the warning signs so we can correct our course, so we can fall on the mercy and the grace of God before we fall into disaster. So we need to know when dead characteristics rooted in misplaced love begin to take hold of our thoughts, our words, and our actions. We need to be alert of dead tactics as they seek to deceive us with half-truths and sneaky words. We need to be sure that every aspect of our lives provides the evidence for the power of Christ and not the weakness of a dead flame based on the flesh. Church family, may we hold on to the flame of faith in the Lord in the face of every characteristic, every tactic, every trial that stands in opposition to the power of God's love, grace, and mercy. And as we do, let us be the evidence of peace and joy and hope that are found only in the life, death, resurrection, and eternal reign of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And in doing so, may we know the fullness of the power of the Holy Spirit in us and through us. And may we share that truth and the love of our God with the world around us that so desperately needs it. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the ways you have loved and saved us. And and we confess wholeheartedly of our undeservedness 
of salvation. You have no reason to come and seek us out. And yet in your great love, you have offered us redemption. So Lord, we thank you and we praise you for that. And Father, we pray that as we walk through this life, and as we continue to do battle with our flesh in this world, knowing our tendencies, knowing the fact that we are drawn to, to sin and to wretchedness. Lord, may the constant reminder of the incredible nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ keep calling us back Keep drawing us to repentance, to turning away from sin, to turning back to you, to running with all we have and all we are after you. And as we do, Father, give us a clarity to clear out all the remainders of of the dead flame of our old flesh, every characteristic, every tactic, every evidence, that we might live with purity of hope, of love, of grace, and of mercy. Pointing with every thought, every word from our mouth, and every deed back to who you are. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. And in your great and your awesome name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you'd like more information about Erie Evangelical Free Church or our ministries, please visit www.eriefree.com or join us in person at 1409 16th Avenue, Erie, Illinois.